Matt Dawson, and welcome to Ortho Science Bites. Today I'm joined by Dr. Akiko Iwasaki. Thank you so much for joining us today, but first let me introduce you to our listeners. Dr. Akiko Iwasaki is the Waldemir von Zedwitz Professor in the Department of Immunobiology and a professor in the Department of Molecular, Cellular, and Developmental Biology at Yale University. She is also a principal investigator at the Howard Hughes Medical Institute. Her research focuses on the mechanisms of immune defense against viruses at mucosal surfaces and how innate recognition of viral mechanisms leads to a generation of adaptive immunity and how that adaptive immunity mediates protection against subsequent viral challenge. Most recently, Dr. Iwasaki has delved into research looking at the immune response of COVID-19 patients and sex differences in SARS-CoV-2 infection. It is truly an honor to have Dr. Iwasaki with us today, and I want to thank you for taking the time to share your experience with us about this important topic. It's my pleasure to be on board here. Thank you. So in the context of COVID-19, to open this conversation today, there are reports that the volume of titer of coronavirus antibodies drops once the acute phase of the disease ends. Are we getting closer to understanding what threshold of memory B cells the body needs to maintain to fight against infection from SARS-CoV-2? So titers of the coronavirus antibodies do seem to drop over several months uh, in most people. And that also applies to the neutralizing antibody titers. Um, and this is not very surprising given that for seasonal coronaviruses, the immunity is also short-lived and reinfection can occur within a year. So it is likely that memory B cells and T cells are being generated and that can offer rapid response upon reinfection uh, to protect against the person from disease. But that is not always the case uh, as we see some reinfections emerging that results in worse disease outcome in some, some cases. So understanding what threshold of memory B cells the body needs to maintain to fight against infection is a key question that we don't quite have the exact answer yet. So in regards to the immune response produced against the presence of the virus that causes COVID-19, what can you tell us about the different subtypes of antibodies produced? Are there any differences seen in the waning of antibody count when S-protein targeting antibodies are measured versus N-protein targeting antibodies? So antibodies can be raised against virtually unlimited types of antigen as well as regions of antigens. So antibodies to the SARS-CoV-2 um, can be targeted to the spike protein, which is really the most accessible um, protein that you will see on the surface of the uh, virus. But it also can be uh, against nucleocapsid or a variety of other uh, viral gene products, uh, such as one of the open reading frame proteins. So antibody to the N protein uh, appears to come up earlier than uh, the antibody to the spike protein, uh, potentially because the nucleocapsid is so abundant uh, when they're produced within an infected cell. Um, but the antibody to spike protein may be a bit longer lasting than the antibody to the nucleocapsid protein. Um, and it's important to keep in mind that only antibody that binds to the surface of the virus is likely to have any impact on preventing the spread or the infection of cells, because those are the antibodies that can block the interaction between the virus and the host target cells. 
Um, so the antibody to nucleocapsid is an important indicator of prior exposure to the virus, but it might not tell us anything about whether that's going to protect someone from reinfection. Fascinating. So, you know, is it also accurate to say that a small percentage of people may not produce any antibodies to the coronavirus? And what is the role of the so-called cellular immunity, which includes T cells that learn to identify and destroy the virus then? Right. Um, so there are some people who do not produce detectable levels of antibody to the coronavirus. And it all depends on when a person is being tested for the antibody, because the, uh, as I mentioned, the antibody titers do wane after uh, several months. So you may have missed the peak of the antibody in that person, or that the person truly was incapable of generating antibody to the, um, to the virus. And so timing, as well as um, the host intrinsic factors that control uh, antibody development is an important um, area of study. And also um, uh, in terms of the cellular immunity, uh, that seems to uh, be present in most, if not all infected people. Uh, so people are tend to produce T cell response to the virus uh, almost uniformly. And so what extent these T cells are uh, capable of clearing the virus infection and protecting from disease is currently not well understood for this virus. But in general, if you have T cells against a, a virus antigen, uh, they tend to uh, protect the person because they can detect infected cells and remove them from the body, thereby removing the factory of the virus. Great. So, you know, the next kind of practical application question for many of our listeners then is really the role of the lab in the fight of the pandemic. So from your research and perspective, what role antibody tests targeting the S1 protein have to determine the effectiveness of vaccines and, and how do you think they should be utilized? So for most vaccines, um, uh, antibody titer against the particular antigen that's included within the vaccine is a key measure of whether a vaccine succeeds in conferring protection in that individual. So it's used as an immune correlate of protection in, in for virtually all the vaccines that we have on hand. So antibody test that looks at the antibody to the spike protein uh, and possibly even within the receptor binding domain of the spike protein, would likely uh, be a great proxy for uh, protection from disease or infection. Um, therefore, the antibody response to the spike protein is a very important measure uh, for not only understanding natural infection and, and resistance to this virus, but to monitor um, effective, effectiveness of vaccines um, as well as other measures. Great. So should there be a combination testing strategy to measure T-cell immune response to SARS-CoV-2 and to measure antibodies to the S1 protein? And what are your thoughts on the uses of antibody tests targeting the S1 protein as a surrogate for uh, neutralization antibody assays? Right. So presence of antibody to the S1 protein is likely a requisite for having neutralizing antibody uh, because most neutralizing antibodies bind to this spike protein. Um, however, it does not guarantee that if you have an anti-S1 antibody, that you would also have neutralizing antibody. This is because the, the region of the spike protein that an antibody binds 
really significantly affects its ability to block uh, uh, infection of the virus. For instance, the receptor binding domain of the S1 protein, if that is targeted by antibody, it's a lot more um, likely to be a neutralizing antibody uh, than just antibody that binds to the, the, the protein um, in other places. Uh, so you would need a certain level of such antibody to have neutralizing effects. And um, ultimately, what you want to do is to have a neutralizing antibody assay, but it is uh, very cumbersome. It requires uh, you know, biosafety level three labs, which um, is quite limited um, and labor intensive. So if we can have a, find a correlate between the amount of anti-S1 antibody, uh, particularly anti-RBD-S1 antibody, and neutralizing antibody, then we can have a much better proxy for neutralization going forward. Dr. Iwasaki, this has been a very informative conversation. And to close, my final question is, what are your comments regarding the level of antibodies needed for immunity? how long that protection might last, and should antibody tests targeting the S1 protein be used to understand the COVID-19 disease trajectory? Yes, thank you for the question. Um, so it is very important to measure antibody uh, that targets the spike one protein of this virus in order to not only understand if a person had been infected with the virus, but to approximate the ability of such antibody to potentially block this virus infection the second time around to prevent reinfection from the virus. Uh, your question about the level of antibody needed for immunity is something that many scientists, including my laboratory, are working on, and we don't have an answer for that yet. Uh, for instance, it's not just the level of antibody but whether they are neutralizing and whether they are targeting the right area of the spike protein is a key question for uh, with regards to uh, protection. And how long that protection might last is another question. We know that uh, naturally acquired antibody from uh, SARS-CoV-2 uh, may not last very long, just like what we see with the endemic coronaviruses. So that's why we need uh, vaccines that can induce robust and long-lasting protective antibody against this virus. Great. And thank you again so much for taking the time. This was uh, fantastic. Thank you so much, Matt. Well, that brings us to the end of this podcast. As you can see, the journey to talk about immunity for COVID-19 is still a topic for more future discussions and research. I hope you enjoyed this podcast edition when we discuss different angles to the question, do antibodies to COVID-19 disappear? Make sure to review the section within the podcast description for reading materials suggested in the reference list. Now, based on our podcast, I leave you with the orthopop quiz of the day. What are the different types of immune response developed in patient with COVID-19? Think about it. If not, go take a re-listen. Thank you for listening today. Please subscribe to Ortho Science Bites, our monthly podcast, where we'll be discussing more complex questions that we face every day in our labs. Brought to you by Ortho Clinical Diagnostics, pioneering advances in diagnostics for 75 years because every test is a life. Take care and stay safe.